0: We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media and it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navaramedia forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Amy Goodman is a reporter's reporter. She's late for our call because she's interviewing a man who had dogs set on him in his prison cell. And she's late to hang up because she wants to hear about a piece I'd recently published. She believes, fervently, in the ability of stories to redistribute power away from elites and towards the people. And she's been doing it for decades, reporting from East Timor, Standing Rock, and broadcasting live on Democracy Now! throughout the 9-11 attacks. I spoke to her about why independent media matters, whether it's possible to be a partisan and a trusted source of news, and just what happened when Bill Clinton phoned into the show. So, listen up. So, big, broad question, just to open up, how would you characterise
1: the state of American political media right now? Well, first of all, Ash, I just want to say how wonderful it is to be talking to you. I don't want to be in the hot seat. I much prefer that I'm asking (laughs) you questions in London, uh, but it's a real honor to be with you. And I've always appreciated your appearances on Democracy Now! As for the state of political media in the United States, I can only say how important it is to have independent media. That is not there brought to you by the weapons manufacturers when we're talking about war not brought to us by Boeing or McDonnell Douglas when we're talking about issues of the military, not brought to us by the oil, the gas, the coal companies when we are talking about the climate catastrophe, and when we're talking about inequality not brought to you by the financial institutions. And that's really important because it's easy to criticize Fox, you know, Murdoch's Fox, but it's not just Fox it is CNN, it is MSNBC, that every five or six minutes are brought to you by the very corporations that we have to be critiquing. That is our job as journalists, not to be on bended knee either to those in Uh, political power or or corporations, in fact, are not only in financial power, but they also wield enormous political power because they pour money into the coffers of candidates, which decides who gets elected and who doesn't. That's why it's so critical to have independent media. I mean, I just want to talk a bit more about
0: the funding model, because as you have explained so well, there is a huge amount of money in media, there's a huge amount of corporate interest in media. And it seems that over the last 15 years, there was this promise of new media disruptors. You know, Jonah Peretti, who was the founder of BuzzFeed, you know, did these kinds of postmodernist Marxist analyses while he was at university. And we thought that this would break the power of establishment media. They were successful for a time and now many of them have collapsed into bankruptcy, they've folded, they've gutted their news gathering stuff, they've gutted their publication capacity and 100 year old publications like the New York Times and the Guardian seem to be having a second lease of life. So what went wrong for the new media disruptors and what went right for the venerable old guard of newspaper publication?
1: I can only say that what I think is the most important model is independent, is being independent of the advertisers, being independent of government funding. Um, That's what democracy now is. And we've moved into our 28th year. So we've been around for more than a quarter of a century. And it is terrible that these new media outlets have gone down, one media outlet after another. I remember years ago um, when we had a radio network called Air America to challenge those in power. You know, it was a number of large investors who poured millions into Air America. And some would turn to us and say, "Why, why don't you have this business model? Well, I can't even remember how quickly Air America went down, but it did. We need a diversified financial base, which is one of listeners, readers, viewers all over the planet who have a single commitment, they don't have to agree politically on all issues, but the idea of a media that is not brought to you by the very entities that we're supposed to be covering and that somehow these media outlets end up being beholden to and on the whim of an investor, if they pull out, that's the end of the media outlet. And it's got to be very different. And that's why, you know, we started Democracy Now! with the idea of it also shoring up what we have in the United States is called public access TV. There's public broadcasting, PBS and NPR, and we're on a lot of those stations. But there's also community television stations all over the country. I don't know if you have that in Britain, but I remember in California when a group said, can we get Democracy Now! here, the TV broadcast? And I said, sure, just ask your public access TV station. They said, no, we don't have one. I said, you have to have one because it's sort of a set aside. The cable companies had to put money in to set this up all over the country. And they dug into the city charter and they saw they were supposed to have one, but no one bothered to build it. And so they, the city was then forced to give something like $3 million to build a TV network in that community. It comes from people pressure. And it is independent media that will save a democracy where people can get access to independent information and different voices. You know, you, in all the media, you get this small circle of pundits who know so little about so much explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong. And that's what we're trying to challenge. We're trying to break the sound barrier, expand who gets heard. It doesn't always have to be the same political slant. People can have major debates, but so often in the media, you get this sort of consensus that Probably many Democrats and Republicans, uh, corporate Democrats and Republicans, that would agree with if you operate within a certain uh, sort of slice. And the fact is, the vast majority of people are outside of that. Those who care about war, care about war and peace. Those who care about LGBTQ issues. Those who care about the climate catastrophe. Uh, those who care about inequality are not a fringe minority. Not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take it back. I mean, it's really
0: fascinating to hear you expand on the ways in which people powered social movements and people powered media are kind of two arms of the same body. But I'd like to know a bit more about your personal route into journalism. Did you see that as an outgrowth of your politics or did your politics developed from the
1: kind of journalism that you were practicing? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, since I was a kid, I was always active in my junior high school or high school newspaper. I mean, in high school, it was, you know, we'd write an editorial about why was the food so bad at our public (laughs) high school. And then it would get better. I mean, the power of the pen was amazing. Um, So then we were taking on the principal. And after that, it's just going to a larger stage and taking on the president and the senators and the Congress members. I really think people get involved in their passions and we're all looking at the sea through different portals. And my way of deeply caring about social justice, um, economic justice, racial justice was uh, through media, whether it was the newspaper, the maroon echo in high school Or when I graduated from college, I came home to turn my thesis into a series of articles for a magazine started by Ralph Nader called the Multinational Monitor. My college thesis was on a contraceptive, an injectable contraceptive called Depo-Provera. It was not approved in the United States. You injected it once every three months. But... It was being sent out from Kalamazoo, Michigan, the Upjohn company, to millions of women around the world. It caused cancer in beagle dogs and monkeys. Um, But so women in Chiang Mai, Thailand were injected with it, women all over the world. And then the company would say this was used, you know, millions of women hours. That wasn't a woman following her for many years or months. It was many millions of women being injected, then they never followed them again. And I was shocked that this drug that wasn't approved in our country could be used all over the world. But I couldn't afford to go to those other places to do my thesis. So I went to Atlanta, Georgia, to the Grady Charity Hospital, where they had injected 10,000 black women with depo They did not know that it wasn't approved by the Food and Drug Administration, um, it led to many women getting sick in the prime of their lives, which shouldn't be. And that started the Black Women's Health Project. So I did this for, um, you know, for college. And I had, I was in anthropology in college. And that was the last thing I had to do uh, before I graduated. I had taken five years off. My entire extended family was coming. I had already made motel reservations. And all I had to do was defend my thesis. And there were three white men from archaeology, from biological anthropology and cultural anthropology. That was the three divisions of anthropology. And they were pushing my thesis back at me. It was called something like the case against Depo-Provera, smoking a pipe because in those days they could (laughs) blow smoke in my face and say, Ms. Goodman, aside from being too journalistic, this is not a thesis in anthropology perhaps sociology. Do you even know what anthropology is? And I knew then I had to graduate because all those motel reservations were not going to be returned. (laughs) So I decided to ask, um, well, doctor, what is your definition of anthropology? Appeal to his vanity. And he said, anthropology is being a participant observer in someone else's culture this perhaps at best is a sociology thesis, uh, because you're looking at your own culture, right? I couldn't afford to go other places. So I said, well, I agree with you. He said, well, what is your definition? I said, anthropology is being a participant observer in someone else's culture. And he said, I just said that. I said, I know, and I agree with it. And he said, but you're looking at your own culture. And I said, no, doctor, I I'm looking at the practice of science and medicine in the United States. And it is a white male corporate practice. It is a white male corporate culture. And I don't consider myself a part of that. So I am looking at you. He says, okay, carry on. So I turned that into a series of articles because I thought they're not gonna use Defo Rivera. We gotta get this information out to the world. Um, And it was when I was turning it into the series of articles that I was listening to this radio station in New York called WBAI, listener-supported radio. I thought it was amazing. They didn't stop for commercials. It was all the beauty, the accents, the culture of New York, the highs and lows of radio, terrible stuff, fantastic stuff. And that's when I decided to do this sort of multimedia extravaganza do radio, do print, and then ultimately TV. Um, Because you don't expect people to come to you. You go to where people are and get out those voices that are not usually heard. I mean, this brings me on to a question I've been dying to
0: ask you really from the moment I first became aware of your work, because Democracy Now! was something which was quite key to my own politicisation, because, you know, you'd go online and you'd watch the clips and you'd go, oh, wow, this thing really, really exists. So, you know, even from when I was at uni, I was watching bits of Democracy Now! and it would um, pop up on my radar. And the thing I've always wanted to ask you is, how do you feel about the journalistic values of objectivity is objectivity different from political neutrality and how do you create a politically conscious form of journalism which can still be trusted by people who don't share the same
1: ideology as you Another excellent question. I mean, I don't think the issue is objectivity. I know the views of every single corporate media anchor and host on television. I know all of their views. The point is to be fair and accurate. I'll give an example. One day on Democracy Now, I can't even remember what the issue was, but we were having a debate and the people were going into the TV studios in the different places and uh, that morning, the one of the guests said they weren't going to be joining us because uh, I had written a column the night before, and I was the host of the show, and it was opposed to her position. And we said, OK, we'll just have to say that you've canceled. And she said, no, I didn't cancel. I said, well, you're either going to be on or you canceled. OK, OK, I'll be on. But I said that very thing. We are fair and accurate. And both of these people raised issues. I also raised issues. You're not finding the worst of a position. You're finding the best way that position can be expressed, whether you're opposed to it or for it. And let that person be heard. And people can make up their own minds. It's about respecting the people who are viewing this. And afterwards, um, they call back to say it was the single best debate they had ever engaged in. They knew I was absolutely opposed to what they were saying, but letting them be heard. And that is absolutely critical. Bill Clinton
0: phoned into your show, I believe,
1: during the 2000 election. Can you tell us about that? That was an amazing moment. Um, Right now, we're in our own TV studios here that we have been in for 10 years. Before that, we were an old firehouse, 100 years old, When 9-11 happened, we were the closest national broadcast to ground zero in this old, what became a community media center, but it was truly a firehouse. I used to go down the fire pole every day (laughs) to get into the studio. Um, But before that, um, we were at WBAI radio uh, before we also became television. Um, And it was uh, 2000. So Hillary Clinton was running for the U.S. Senate. Al Gore was running for president against George W. Bush. And we were doing the show that day. It would be a very long day, you know, eight in the morning is the show. And we wouldn't know until after midnight what the results of the election were. And we get this call as we're going into the studio. The president is on the line and would like to talk to you. So anyway, I picked up the phone. the producers were already in the control room. And I, it was like a, just a few minutes before the show, and I said, "Excuse me, the president of what?" They said, "The president <laughs> of White House, the White House is calling," and so. I thought they said White Horse. That is an iconic bar in the village in New York. And I thought, I didn't even know they have presidents. And what is the president of a bar calling this early in the morning? Obviously, I thought it was a total crank. And I said, the president of what? And they said, this is the White House calling. Oh, the White House. President Clinton? They said, yes. I did not know if I could believe this, but already the producers are yelling, get in here. The music was swelling for the show. I said, OK, here's the internal number. If he wants to call, he can. I didn't believe it was going to happen. Of course, we have a whole show plan. We go in. I said, guys, everyone, uh, the president might call. Make sure you pick up the phone. Think of some questions <laughs> if he calls. And we do the show. He doesn't call. We're going out for coffee because it's going to be a long day. And uh, the host of Alternativa Latina, the music, Latino music show was on next. And we were just going out. And we hear him shout, the president of the United States, President Clinton is on the phone. Get in here. <laughs> right. Democracy Now! was over. But I thought, I'm not going to knock Gonzalo off the air. This is live radio, you know, 24 hours a day. I think Gonzalo, you want to interview him with me? So he got his producer. <laughs> I had my two producers. Um, all the salsa music was playing. And you could hear President Clinton saying, hello, hello, below the salsa music. So I jumped over the control board, brought down all the music faders, brought up uh, his fader, because Gonzalo is like paralyzed at the board. <laughs> and I said, Mr. President, I understand that you are calling to get the vote out. And he said, that's right. And I said... Well, could you explain why you think people should get out to the vote, those who feel that both parties, the Democratic and Republican parties, are captured by corporations? This was not a planned question. I really didn't think this was going to happen. People wait their entire careers for an interview with the most powerful person on earth. He answered that, but he was still on the phone. Oh, they had said he had a few minutes to talk, but he hadn't hung up. So I said, I think I asked him about Leonard Peltier, who is a political prisoner, Native American leader in prison for decades. I knew he was considering granting clemency or weighing that issue, and I asked, would he be granting clemency? He answered that question. And then we went on to talk about the two UN undersecretary generals who had both quit over the sanctions against Iraq, calling them genocidal. He got quite annoyed at that, but he answered that question. We asked about the bombing of Vieques, a Puerto Rican island, using napalm, the U.S. Navy using it as a target practice. We asked about racial profiling, and they said they would end that. Al Gore, if he were president, I said, you both have been in office for eight years. You haven't ended it yet. You know that people make promises, but what has stopped you from passing an executive order that would end racial profiling? And then I asked him about Ralph Nader running for president. They had blamed him for um, possibly throwing it to the Republicans. And I said, many people say it was you who really brought the Democratic Party to the right that makes someone like Ralph Nader so appealing. And then he got really angry. And he said, I find you hostile, combative, at times disrespectful. I said, then I only have a few more questions. <laughs> anyway, it was about a half an hour. He had to go. It was pretty unprecedented. It ran on Alternativa Latina first. And the next day, we ran on Democracy Now! And right after the show, we come back into our office and the White House calls. Ms. Goodman, you're going to be banned from the White House. I said, Banned? I said, you called me. I didn't call you. And they said, we told you he could talk about getting out the vote. You asked questions three, four, and seven about the vote. But the rest of the questions, I said, wait a second. First of all, it sounds like you have a transcript. Could you send it to us? We'd like to post it online. But number two, (laughs) yes, you did say what he wanted to talk about. But how many journalists did he talk to in New York? Because he was trying to get out votes for Hillary running for New York Senate seat. And he said, like 40. And I said, and you told them what he wanted to say, and they only asked questions about that. That's a very sad comment on American journalism. I had no, they, they said, you broke every agreement. I said, you, I, I'm the one you spoke to. I made no agreement with you, except that we would pick up the phone. And I thought it was terrific that he ultimately called. Um, and they said, and anyway, we said he had two or three minutes. You spent more than half an hour with him. I said, sir. The man is the leader of the free world, the most powerful person on earth. He could hang up if he wanted to. Um, so it was very interesting half hour, and we got a lot of questions in.
0: What do you make of the culture of you know White House correspondence? Because one of the few things that, you know, we sort of pick up from American political media is the White House Correspondence Dinner, and it seems like a very chummy affair you know, you've got the president sort of roasting his contemporaries, you've got all these journalists who are invited for a swanky dinner. And the thing which always strikes me is how much useful journalism can you get out of a culture where the president clearly doesn't fear you or is confident enough in your presence that he's willing to, you know, get drunk and crack jokes in your presence? Do, do you think that, you know, the White House, White House Correspondence Circuit is capable of producing useful journalism? Is it Anything you've been tempted to
1: join, or do you think it needs serious overhaul? I used to go to the White House press briefings. Uh, that's very different from the White House correspondence Dinner. And that's where you could ask the spokesperson for the president, or sometimes the president himself, uh, would show up, and you could ask them a question. I would really push. This was under President Clinton uh, when we were based, and when Democracy Now! first started, we started in Washington, D.C., Um, At the time, I was deeply concerned among many uh, issues of the U.S. arming the Indonesian regime, which was uh, really a dictatorship, was occupying East Timor, one of the great genocides of the late 20th century, and I spent a lot of time covering East Timor. And I said, um, you know, everyone was chatting with Mike McCurry, he was the press spokesperson at the time, about the size of the president's golf club. So that's that chumminess. And I said, why did President Clinton approve another F-16 weapons sale to Indonesia? And uh, they sort of, everyone tittered. And I looked around. I mean, I definitely did not fit in, but I don't think journalists should. And I asked again, because he didn't answer the question. And he said, the turnip is dry. The turnip, is this some message I'm just supposed to send to the Chinese or something? And everyone giggles. Um, because there's a kind of agreement of what you press on and what you didn't. And it's really important. I mean, We have such a huge responsibility of journalists. So many people don't have the time to ask the most powerful people questions. So we have a major responsibility. I sort of see my hand holding that microphone as thousands of hands, all different colors, holding that microphone and trying to break through to ask the critical questions of the day. Now, the White House correspondence dinner, I've never been to because, yes, it is a very cozy affair where you invite politicians as your plus one and you're all joking around. And I think that um, that kind of um, camaraderie creates a lot of peer pressure. You're not going to challenge those, make them uncomfortable. And we have a responsibility to hold those in power accountable. That's why, I mean, I was lucky enough to find at the beginning of my career what people look for, and in particular, journalists look for their whole careers, and that is independence. I mean, I think that a lot of journalists are very idealistic when they go into journalism, but when they join a corporate newsroom, they start to see what gets them to rise up that corporate ladder and what gets them marginalized, right? Um Uh, the U.S. is about to attack Iraq and to say, I want to go out into the streets and cover those protests. You know, the following of soldiers from their hometown to where they're about to uh, gather at a base and then go on to war. You'll have all those stories. What about a peace activist leaving their home, uh, having to go to Washington, D.C. to make their voice heard? Why aren't we following them in the same way? Because, The fact is that, for example, with the Iraq War in 2003, most people were opposed to President Bush invading Iraq. For what reason? Um, In fact, the world, right, uh, millions of people rocked the globe for peace. That was in February. In March, he did it anyway. But if you looked at the media, you would hardly see that the vast majority of people were opposed to her. occasionally they might bring in an anti-war voice. This was even in public broadcasting in the United States. I was invited at the time on Charlie Rose. And he asked me about where Democracy Now broadcast. And I said to him, well, you know, we broadcast on public access, on community radio, on college radio, and NPR, and PBS stations. I had to go through everything because we pieced together everything. It wasn't as simple as saying I'm on CBS News and it sounded like an ad. And I said, you know, this is what it looks like, a kind of quilt of independent media. And he, this he who was in public broadcasting, said, What is this thing you keep saying, independent? And I said, well, this is something you should know, Charlie. I mean, of course. And, you know, I'll quote Dan Rather on CBS, um, who said uh, he felt he would be frog marched if he raised serious questions about the war, you know, be considered unpatriotic. It's our job, especially in times of war or if a president is weighing going to war, to ask those questions. We're not there to circle the wagons around the White House waving the American flag. Do you see
0: any hopeful signs that U.S. media has become more critical in the intervening years since the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan of U.S. foreign policy? Or is there kind of this code of omerta of circling the wagons, certain questions you don't ask, certain points you don't raise, because it jars with the government's narrative or the U.S.'s stated foreign
1: policy interests? You know, when Donald Trump became president, if you just tuned in to the networks, to MSNBC or CNN, you could say, oh, my God, the networks have found a backbone, a spine. I mean, they are really challenging those in power. And that was true you know, well, the first thing Trump did was go after the media. So it was also for their own survival. But if you heard, if only that were the model of how they are all the time, that's when they started questioning everything and actually started counting the lies of President Trump, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I mean, he spoke, he lied. And that was very important. You'd have the Times, you'd have all the networks referring, the New York Times, referring to lies. And that was correct. But how many times presidents had lied who were Democrats as well as Republicans, right? George Bush lying us into the Iraq War. And why it matters? Because the lies take lives, The sanctions regime against Iraq was under President Clinton. And the lies take lives. It really matters. And so that should be the model, the way the media uh, took on Trump for how the media should be, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican president. In terms of the...
0: Case being made for arming Ukraine in the face of the Russian invasion, do you think there is sufficient skepticism or questioning? Or is there maybe some pulling of the punches because people feel politically and ideologically aligned to Ukraine?
1: Yes. I mean, and because in the United States it's a Democratic president, it's much less likely in those networks that more ally with the Democratic Party to ask those questions. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine is an absolute horror. The question is, how do wars end? The number of Ukrainian soldiers who are dying, Ukrainian civilians who are dying, Russian soldiers who are dying. I mean, what's happening is horrific. And it is clearly a war crime, President Putin uh, invading Ukraine. But wars end through negotiation. And what isn't being done is the push for that kind of negotiation at a global level the pressures that are brought on parties to lead to an end to this atrocity that's taking place of course in the united states i mean after the us pulled out of afghanistan there was real questions about even military alliances and you know spending much less on the military budget and I'm sure military contractors were very threatened by that. Now you're talking about billions of dollars um, being put into weapon systems, the growing NATO alliance, and the very people like the CIA director of the director of central intelligence in the United States is William Burns. He was one of the most important voices against the expansion of NATO for years, warning uh, he was a former ambassador to Russia. You're going to push Russia over the edge if you keep you know, pushing forward um, the idea of not one more inch. And those voices, you don't hear as much raising those issues. And I think we need to have a debate in the United States uh, and around the world about how this war is ended. Um And it doesn't help that um, all these networks break every five or six minutes. And more often than not, there's a military weapons contractor advertisement in there for so many reasons. I mean, we're now talking about war, but the issue of the climate catastrophe, and they're connected, by the way, because the Pentagon in the United States, the war departments in other countries They are some of the greatest emitters of fossil fuels and generators of the climate catastrophe. And so for all of these reasons, we must ask very serious questions. Um, We accept that people wage war, but what about waging peace? It's not easy, especially when you have serious aggressors How do you rein these powers in? And that should be the discussion of a civilized society in democratic media.
0: I'm so glad you raised the climate crisis because one of the things that we found as an organization, we do these audience surveys and our audience always says the same thing. We want more climate coverage and we make more climate coverage and it's very hard to get engagement on it. People don't want to click on it. People don't want to watch it. And I think that there's a variety of reasons for why they don't want to engage with the content when you make it. How has the climate catastrophe changed the way you guys do journalism? Has it changed the way you do journalism? And how do you get
1: people engaged with it? Well, at this point, I think all over the planet, people recognize. And across the political spectrum, I mean, businesses right now, farmers, the tourism industry. I mean, just today on Democracy Now!, we were reporting that off the Florida coast, um, off the Florida Keys, it's the hot tub effect. The temperature Fahrenheit, sorry, is more than 101 degrees Fahrenheit, like a hot tub. What does this mean? It means that the coral reefs are dying. They're bleaching and dying. It means um, have a level of catastrophe, just a report, just another report came out on what's happening to the oceans. We see the wildfires in Canada, in the United States, but that's all a part of this. The air quality, I'm in New York City, AQI, the air quality index, is supposed to be well under 50 And a few weeks ago, it was close to 500 people couldn't walk outside. I have a little puppy. I was so terrified walking with her, her little lungs, how they would be filled with this debris from fires that are not even in our country. Climate, by the way, teaches us borders are completely irrelevant. So you have the wildfires that are caused by the climate catastrophe You have the baking of Africa, of Asia, of Europe. Everyone is affected. In Phoenix, Arizona, we're talking about, well, again, Fahrenheit, 118 degrees Fahrenheit, more than 100 degrees every day after day for more than three weeks. We have never seen anything like this. July was the hottest month in the record books and history. And of course, what's happening to the Amazon And I think we are learning a lesson right now that uh, it doesn't matter your political stripe. You're going to be deeply, deeply affected, the flooding along the coastline, the fact that whole countries will be submerged. We have started covering climate many years ago. Our first UN climate summit was Copenhagen in 2009, and we've been to uh, Peru, to Poland, coal land three times, I think, Poznan, Warsaw, and Katowice. But we're all connected all over the planet. And the climate catastrophe has taught us this. And the power of the corporations to try to change the conversation. I mean, in Paris, you had the accord. Uh, This past year, we were in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt at that summit. And next year, this uh, later this year, it's in UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And what's just so shocking is the president of the COP, the Conference of Parties, the UN Climate Summit is going to be the head of the UAE oil company. I mean, if this doesn't say it in black and white so clearly, people are protesting this everywhere. Who knows if that will continue to be when that happens. But I think people across the world are very tuned in right now. Our goal at democracy now is to have people tune in as much as, you know, they tune into weather every few minutes to all the media. You want to find out whether to put on a raincoat or whether to wear a sweater. And that weather, sadly, it wasn't always this way, but weather and climate change are completely connected. And no meteorologist on television should be allowed to be certified as a meteorologist without talking about the climate catastrophe. I just interviewed a climate, a meteorologist on an Iowa TV station who quit uh, because when he talked about climate change and the connection to what's happening in Iowa, um, he got death threats. Um, So it's true, people still don't want to make the connection, but I think viscerally everyone knows and we just have to keep on reporting the facts. And that's what will save us. Is it simply enough to report the facts? Because,
0: you know, we're competing in an attention economy where there's more information than ever. There's more infotainment than ever. And me and you, we're fighting to drag people's eyes away from Instagram or from Twitter or from reading about the latest Premier League football transfers. And we're having to tell stories in a way that reaches them you know and and that's changed dramatically over the last few decades there's a lot of personality driven media pundit driven media opinion driven media have you ever felt that that's encroaching into your space a bit and you're having to adapt to it or for you is traditional reporting facts based journalism important to maintain as kind of a, a bulwark against you know the incursion of like the influencer journalist and I'm, I'm pointing at myself here as well critically.
1: How, well, how do you see yourself what's most important? I think that my way into
0: journalism was by first being active on social media and participating in what felt like a digital town square and one of the things that I've learned is that you can sometimes be the thing which makes a story sticky for people how you tell the story how you engage with them how you appeal to their emotions how you break something down can be the difference between glazing over and going I already know this and skipping to the next thing or staying with you and I'll I'll give you an example I had a story recently which was about these hoax climate documents which were found in London they were marked top secret at first I thought this was my Woodward and Bernstein moment I thought I had these amazing government documents turned out that they were fake and I wanted to find out who who was behind it and I had a feeling that they were frustrated climate activists and so I tracked them down and and did some really substantive interviews to get into their motivations thinking about what this says about the way in which we as media reports climate journalism. And then the challenge was going, well, how do you tell this story? And I was like, I can just stick to the facts. I can have nothing of my perspective. I can have very little that's got an emotional register, or I can try and tell this like a ripping yarn, a detective story where the thing that holds it together is that you're seeing it from behind my eyes. And I did the second thing and it did work. Now you can't do that with every climate story. That's not a, you know, one crazy internet trick, but sometimes, I think that you do have to do personality-driven journalism, even if it feels a bit dirty somehow to sell so much of yourself for the public gaze. I mean, do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel a bit, how much
1: of me is driving this? I mean, I just think some of the most powerful moments of Democracy Now!, for example, covering the standoff at Standing Rock, that was such an important moment. It was when Clinton was running against Trump and, you know, climate was such an important issue, but the media wasn't talking about the climate crisis, let alone this epic moment. It was the largest gathering of indigenous people in the United States in decades. It was in North Dakota. They were fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline um, uh, that was owned by energy transfer partners. They were protesting. They were Thousands of people who'd come from all over the world, First Nations in Canada, Indigenous people from Latin America, uh, Native Americans from all over the United States and allies. So we went out there. And I mean, this got a tremendous amount of attention. uh, But I think it's because the microphone wasn't pointed in our direction, but in theirs. And so few of the corporate networks were there to hear the amazing words of what people had to say, why they traveled so many thousands of miles to come and set up a teepee or a tent uh, to fight a corporation that was building a pipeline that would endanger so many. Um, They were changing the language. They said, don't call us protesters, call us water protectors. You know, it would go under the Missouri River that endangered millions of people downstream clean water. And it was Labor Day weekend of September 2016. Uh, we were covering a protest. Uh, they w- went to what they called their sacred area, an ancient burial ground, and they saw bulldozers, one, two, three, four, five, six of them, already digging up the earth that was going to court. They, this was actually a court case to decide whether they could, but they were jumping ahead and they were just going to dig it all up. And women and girls, they jumped over the fence and they were standing in front of these earth-crushing machines. And just to show that and hear people saying why they were doing this, we got this video. And then uh, the security, as the people pushed forward, the bulldozers pulled back. And then the security guards unleashed dogs on the water protectors. Dogs. They were biting them. Uh, the security guards were jumping them, beating them, macing them. But the dogs, that was reminiscent of the civil rights movement and, uh, uh, you know, Bull Connor in the South and Birmingham unleashing dogs on child protesters. Um, and we just videoed all that, you know, just the facts. Uh, and we posted it. And then we had to go back to New York. Um, and the response was Incredible. I mean, people were observing this. I mean, just to be there. And days later, um, my colleague and I, Nermeen Shaikh, were he- uh, I was headed to Canada for the Toronto International Film Festival because they were doing a film on I.F. Stone, who is a great muckraking journalist who said to journalism students, if you can remember two things, remember government's lie. If you can remember three words, remember all government's lie. And so we were going to speak after that film, but just before we went, I didn't know this, but the North Dakota authorities announced, um, well, they had, what we did know is that they were bringing out the state troopers, which looked very bad for the Native Americans because a court decision was going to be the next day. But what I didn't know is they'd issued an arrest warrant for me. So they were making me the story. I didn't know this. So when I went to Canada, I wasn't fleeing the United States. We were just going to this film festival. And the next day, I always have my phone with me. And I was giving a talk at the University of Toronto about the importance of independent journalism like I always do. And all of a sudden on my phone, a text came up that said, you're under arrest. And I thought it was a kid at the University of Toronto who had somehow hacked my phone. I'm going, "Okay, I'm just going to ignore this. But I see it's a North Dakota number that an arrest warrant had been issued for me. And when I looked, I thought, well, this is serious. I have to be able to get back into my country without being arrested. You know, if there's an arrest warrant and you have to deal with the FBI or Border Patrol or police, you're in trouble. But if I could beat the arrest warrant going into the system. So I just looked up into the audience and said, could someone call me a cab? And I didn't say (laughs) what was going on. And I got to the airport. I got back into the United States. But it was critical to go back to North Dakota to challenge them trying to make me the story when clearly uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Native American resistance was the story. But I wanted to let young journalists know um, who don't have this kind of institutional support. uh, You know, the message was, do not come to North Dakota. And I wanted to let them know, no, that's the place to be. History is being made. So we went back to North Dakota because of the attention. They dropped the... charge. But then they heightened it to be a felony. I asked my North Dakota lawyer, not that I had a North Dakota lawyer before, what did this mean? And he said, I mean, maybe a year in jail. I said, a year in jail? I don't know about your life, but it matters to me. How much time do I have? He said, well, three days you'll be arraigned. So we covered all the protests for three days. We broadcast from in front of the courthouse so I could turn myself in right after. Between the courthouse and the jail, there was the Ten Commandments. And I interviewed the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux, Dave Archambault, at the time. I said, have you ever been arrested? He said, yes, for civil uh, for our sit-ins, for our civil disobedience. I asked the pediatrician at the Standing Rock Reservation, Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle, have you been arrested? She was one of the first because she wanted to protect the health of the children on the reservation. And I asked them both, what happened to you? They said, we were strip searched. We were put in an orange jumpsuit. We were jailed. I mean, how much humiliation can a people take? This is the 45th president a uh, chairman of the standing rock soup trump was the 45th president of the united states it would be interesting to see him in an orange jumpsuit which we may see him soon but anyway right at that point after we did the show and i was going to cross the street hundreds of indigenous people came to show support i got a call from New- north dakota public radio they said cuz they all know each other and you know the judges the uh, the prosecutors that they're going to, the judge will never sign off on these charges against you. Um, why? Because for once the media was shining a spotlight in the right direction. I mean, we were the homepage of Al Jazeera, BBC, New York times, Vogue magazine, and you can see, (laughs) I I don't merit Vogue magazine. Um, but the fact that they were showing what's happening there and that day a number of Native Americans who had felony and misdemeanor charges against them, they were dropped as well who were going to court like me. And I don't like reality TV, but if reality TV truly showed the reality of people's lives on the ground, which it was being forced to do now because a journalist was being arrested, it really could change the world. And um, ultimately that Dakota Access Pipeline was built But that movement that built around it, led by indigenous people, that has had an enormous effect all over the world. And the video, it started with that video of the dogs. I mean, President Obama at the time was in Laos giving a session on democracy for students throughout Asia. And one of the last questions was, President Obama, what about those dogs being unleashed? Uh, on the indigenous people, they saw the video online. And he said, I'll get back to you on that. He came back to the United States, I heard he saw the dog video at the White House. And it wasn't lost on the first African American president, what the meaning of those dogs was. Um, So I think showing reality, uh, the response globally, I mean, within 24 hours, there were Uh, close to, what was it, 20 million views of that video. Amy Goodman, thank
0: you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights about the importance of independent, truth-telling journalism. I really appreciate your time. And you've been such an inspiration to us here at Navarra
1: Media. It is lovely to finally be the one interviewing you. Oh, well, Ash, it's been so great interviewing you. And it's great to have this conversation with you. And all the best with Novara Media, really. I mean, media, democratic media is the oxygen of uh, democracy and we have to fight for it everywhere. Thanks so much. Thank you.